So what this is, this is designed, it's welcome to everyone, it's, this is a practice center, so the, the talks that are offered here on Wednesday nights are designed for people that are interested in practicing, in getting to know themselves in ways that might be useful, using the techniques of meditation that have been handed down for many centuries from the, from the Buddha. So I'm going to be, what I will be doing tonight is, is presenting some information in this spirit. So hopefully it'll be useful um, to you in that, in that spirit of practice, okay, of waking up to our lives and seeing, seeing if we can live in a way that, that uh, helps us, okay. Um, did anyone see the title of the talk? Mm-hmm. Reflections on the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> so... <laughs> I'll get into it, and I'll be exploring throughout um, what this sutra is about. The last, it is a sutra, actually, the last, the last words of the Buddha. It's the last sutra, and sutra means teaching, okay? It, it means a, a presentation of material that is, is in the service of what the Buddha would call awakening. So the last words of the Buddha in this sutra, the last words that the Buddha uttered when he was alive, does anyone know what they are? All conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your salvation or your completion with diligence. And then he expired. So this this points us to the fleeting nature of life, and it's a call to awakening. His last words were a call to awakening. For each one of us to awaken ourselves. There's another very famous uh, phrase teaching within this sutra, which actually is, uh, is the longest of all the sutras in the early Buddhist teaching. Uh, it's, it, I got a translation. I, I've been working with Larry Rosenberg closely, and he, I, I give a talk here once a year, and he sort of, we talk about what sutra would be good to, to work with, what teaching. And so he said, why don't you work with this one? I said, fine. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. It's 69 pages long. <laughs> and what it actually is, it's a whole... It's, it's stories, and it's a sort of compilation of the teachings the Buddha gave for the last year of his life and the events. And so it actually gives a very human, sort of, it mixes classical teaching with, with stories in his life. And it, it gives insight into how he died, and which can help us, hopefully, how he died. Maybe that can help us to find out how, how we're living. So, so Larry gave me this sutra to work on. I didn't really uh, know what I was getting into. And I sort of lived with it and chewed, you know, chewed on it and tried to digest it over the last month, practice with it. And um, it's very, it, it contains a wide, wide range of teachings. And what I want to do, so there's this one teaching on impermanence. And another very famous teaching within the sutra is uh, be a light or be an island unto yourself. So that's a, Many of you have probably already heard that expression. And so what I'd like to do is address both of these and then help them to introduce sort of an introduction to a classical way that the Buddha spoke to and tried to address the human condition and where we suffer, how we suffer in life, and how we can undo some of the suffering that we have in life. He spoke a lot of reliance on mind, that each one of us, so work out your salvation, be a light unto yourself, that it's up to us to do the work, that we need to turn that light of awareness into ourselves, and that's where the work is going to happen. When we cling to things uh, that are impermanent, if we hold them in unskillful ways, we suffer. That's the basic premise of the human condition, okay? And oftentimes we think that means we just have to let go, right? 
Everything's about letting go. We hear that all the time, let go. Well, another way to look at it is that our relationship, since all things that we deal with in ourselves and in others are impermanent, that it's, it's relationship that we have a problem with. So we're trying to learn through the teachings to have right relationship to the materials in our lives. Rather than just, it's not like just letting go. It's learning how to use them skillfully to wake up. So I want to give one example of how the Buddha, so there's a classical training we'll talk about, how the Buddha uh, dealt with intense suffering in his own life as he was dying. So there's a, when the Buddha was, was dying, the, the story of how the Buddha actually died was he, was, he, was, he accepted some, some meat to eat. Okay? He, didn't, he was it, vegetarians. You can be a vegetarian if you're a Buddhist. The, the old teaching said that you actually can't have, if you were a monk, you couldn't have uh, meat killed for you. Right? So, but if someone offered it, whatever was offered, you, you received it. So he received this meat, and it was bad. And I don't know what, what he got. E. coli or something? I don't know. And he had excruciating pain. Excruciating. It, it eventually killed him. And uh, so I'll read from the sutra. After eating the meal, the Lord, they have this old sort of antiquated language, which is quite interesting. We have to dig through it sometimes, because if you read the sutras yourself, you get this language which was oriented towards monks and nuns, say, 2,600 years ago, halfway around the world. It's quite amazing they're still relevant for us today. But we have to do some work to get to the essence of it. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Okay? So I think the language is actually quite humorous. It grew on me as I was studying the sutra. So after the Lord was, after he ate this meat, he was attacked by severe sickness and <laughs> diarrhea. With sharp pains as if he were about to die. But he endured this mindfully and clearly aware and without complaint. Mindfully and clearly aware and without complaint. And he probably didn't even complain to himself. And that's the trick. So his body was suffering, but he had such capacity, somehow he had cultivated such skill in relationship to his body that he actually didn't, he, his mind didn't suffer when his body was suffering. So this is the relationship of mind and body. It could also be emotions. And that's where, that's where most of us would like the work to take place, right? It's the difficult emotions. It can be physical, but it can be both. So before I go into the classical teachings of how, how he cultivated, what he actually did to cultivate this capacity, and how it can be of use to us potentially, I want to explore a few attitudes um, towards practice that I think are very, very valuable. They have to do with mind, our relationship to our mind, using our mind. When I was a, 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 a kid, my father, who was, a, who was an intellectual uh, and a very practical guy, he, he said to me one time, he said, you are the decisions you make. It's kind of heady for a little kid to receive that. <laughs> what, Dad? <laughs> but... <laughs> But a point of, and it's actually from Satra, who's an existentialist. That's, I think that's where he got it from. I don't think it's an original thought of my father's. <laughs> but it pointed me to the power of, of mind and the consequence of how we use our minds. My mother, on the other hand, <laughs> actually, it's not on the other hand. She has, a, on, on her uh, black Audi that she has, she has a bumper sticker. And it says, question reality. So with parents like this... <laughs> That's why I'm sitting up here, right? 
So the, the Buddha wouldn't say just question reality. He would say question how to live in this reality that we find ourselves in. He was really a pragmatist. Okay? And this, the teachings are extremely pragmatic. But I learned at a young age to question. The Buddha asks us to do this too. So he's saying, with, when you look at the Buddha's teachings, he's saying, don't, don't accept things on faith just because they're said by someone in authority, including himself. But really have an attitude of learning. Have an attitude of testing. I'll get into that more in a, in a minute. But there's something, but that attitude of, of testing, of learning, it's, it's, an, it's a lifelong attitude to be willing to be open to new things, to have a mind that's not so closed, not so fixed in its patterns, that it can actually change and grow. So, you know, uh, many of you have heard of lifelong learning institutes and things like that. And for those of us who have a decent education, we go, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's not so great. It doesn't get a great press, but it, especially if we, all, if we all have these great degrees, right? Then we think we're something special. But then if we have these great degrees and we don't continue learning, then we're stuck. So I, I just love this phrase of, of lifelong learning because it's an attitude which can serve us very well. I was sitting in a, a lecture once, sitting on a class um, at Harvard with uh, Harvey Cox, who is a very famous theologian I studied in college. Was, he came in the back of the hall and he was just sitting there listening to the lecture someone else was giving. And I remember it touched me very deeply because I realized this guy who's got all this knowledge, he's, he's learning, he wants to learn, he wants to continue to learn. And my father, who's a retired professor, He's learning all the time. He's continuing to, to stay open to new things in life. That's, this learning is a good attitude, but often it, it's just applied to accumulating knowledge. And what the Buddha is asking us to do as lifelong learners is to have the willingness to unlearn as well. It's not just accumulating knowledge. It's lear- learning, being willing to unlearn the patterns that get us in trouble, our reactive patterns in the face of experience. So one way to look at the Buddha's teachings is like, he was likened to a doctor, actually. And uh, this would be, uh, or a scientist. It would be like going into a lab. This is a really, going into a lab, and when you go into a lab, you're, you're trying to test an experiment to see whatever, whatever you're doing. You want to you carry through an experiment. And two attitudes are very important when you go into a lab to do an experiment. I suppose, I'm not a scientist. Okay? And one is to set up the experiment well enough Okay, set up the parameters well enough so I can, you know, it, it's, it'll be a, a worthy, it'll be a good experiment. Um, to stay open to the results, right? Not to have a fixed opinion, not to have a fixed result you're trying to get. And the second one is to have a, an attitude of stick so that you can stay with the experiment long enough to really see if you get results or what results come out. And this same attitude is necessary when we um, practice, when we apply the when we apply to the, uh, to the practice that the Buddha was recommending. So it's a curious mixture of both this inquiry, this questioning, this doubting, this looking into, in the sense of it takes a little bit of patience, some confidence. There was, a, are many of you familiar with the Insight Meditation Society? Out in Barrett, Massachusetts, sort of a big sort of sister organization of this one, where they do long, longer retreats. And uh, one time a letter showed up there, and it was, it was uh, addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> so this is not <laughs> the instant meditation path. <laughs> okay? It takes patience. 
It takes patience. And even to find out whether the strategies that the Buddha recommends are helpful to us takes patience. Okay? So I want to go back to the, uh, back to the, the Buddha eating the, the bad meat example. Okay? So the Buddha suffered in body, but he didn't add anything on to that suffering in his mind. And that's the basic issue that the Buddha is addressing when he's dealing with the human predicament. That life throws us curveballs, and how we respond to those, often we add suffering to experience through our reactive patterns that just don't help us or others. It happens again and again and again. And the Buddha is saying that we can undo that second level, right? It doesn't mean the body won't get sick. He wasn't, you know, he was a human being or human beings. It doesn't mean we won't have emotional pain necessarily. What it means is that we'll have the capacity potentially to not add anything extra onto it. And that gives a tremendous strength of mind. So the, the classical model of the Buddhist teachings, which we can see as, in a certain way, is like a savings account in the mind and the heart. So that when we, when we do face difficulty, which we do, <laughs> and a lot of us are here because we, we know that we do and we want to change our relationship to it, that we'll have some credit, right? We'll have, some, we'll have some, some money. We'll have some saved up that we can use in times of need. But it's not money. It's, it's the buoyancy of the mind and heart to face difficult situations. Okay? So the classical model that the Buddha spoke of was divided into three parts. And it has to do with ethical training or sensitivity to how we're living, concentration, learning how to concentrate, calm, and still the mind, and to see into experience in a clear way. Okay? Wisdom. So I want to talk about these a bit, each one. Ethical sensitivity. So their underlying sort of underlying ethical sensitivity are some attitudes. Again, back to attitude, which I think are very important. It's a rare gift, this what we have, what we've been given, a body and a mind. The conditions that have come together to create this are pretty amazing. A famous Tibetan monk, um, Tsongkhapa, Lama Tsongkhapa, who was one of the bringers. He was one of the uh, first really strong um, people to, to bring Tibet, uh, Tibetan Buddhism into Tibet. said, cherish your body. And this is, this is, cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life, you must know, was the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that passes away even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your goal and make every day and night a time to attain it. So he's saying, use this precious body. And if, since this is a training of the mind and the heart, just what, you know, use the body, but of course, use the mind as well. So ethical sensitivity is asking us, the attitude that underlies underlies it is asking us to use all the conditions in our life, in our bodies, our minds, the external conditions to help us to wake up. It's asking us to have the willingness to learn, to learn from what we eat, from what we say, from who we interact with, our entertainments, our work, all the conditions, all the atmospheres, all the different conditions in our life, asking to use them as a precious opportunity to wake up, 
to wake up to what? This inherent capacity of the mind and heart, which we haven't uncovered or cultivated as fully as we could, the Buddha is saying. So it springs from a willingness to learn. And all of the precepts, when we talk about precepts, these are considered rules, outer forms. They all come from this, like non-harming and all the rest. They come from people that have really looked at their life situation, looked at how they actually live, and have optimized their lives in terms of waking up. So the, the Buddha was a great yogi. The Hatha yogis, uh, and I do Hatha yoga, right? And I teach that here as well, um, have a real tendency to work with the body a lot. The Buddhists tend to work with the mind, and there's often a, often a split between the two. But there's a wholeness in our life, like the quote from Tsongkhapa was saying. We are alive. All of the things in our life, if we're sensitive to them, can be calls to wake up. But we have to really be willing to see how we live and be responsive and make changes when we need to. There's two sort of tricky, these are reflections that I find useful to work with ethics as well. <clears throat> They're strategies the Buddha gave. One is a little difficult, but you know when we're doing something and we, we've, we, even while we're doing it, we sense that it's going to be harmful for ourselves or others? Oftentimes, we think it might be better if we just don't know that it's going to be harmful and we just do it. So the ignorance is bliss model. <laughs> The Buddha said it's actually, if you, if you do something that you regret later, okay, that you see is harmful for you or others later, if you do it and you're partially aware of it, okay, there's some sensitivity to it, some awareness, and you struggle, that that's far better than just to act with ignorance, just all the way through. So all of his teachers are pouring to this strength of mind, okay, cultivating the strength of mind. Now, the problem with that can be for some of us, and that's why the other strategy balances it, is that we can beat ourselves up, right? And so this is a story that I, I, really, uh, I really like. Um, I just read it in a book recently of, of stories by a teacher named Ajahn Brahms, who's a, who's a Western uh, monk in the Ajahn Chah lineage from Thailand. And he was in a monastery in, in Australia, uh, and he was building a wall. They just had to build this monastery from scratch. And so he worked really hard and long on this wall, big wall, and that he was when it was done, he was unhappy because two of the bricks were really out of place. He was not happy with it at all. So when he first he asked the abbot if he could tear it down, and he said no. And then when others came to the monastery and he was showing them around, he, he would avoid the wall. This is the story, at least. <laughs> he wouldn't take them to the wall to see the wall. But then one time he was going around the monastery, and one person did see the wall, and he paused, and he looked at the wall, and he said, wow, that's a beautiful wall. And the monk was a little shocked that he said this. And he's like, don't you see those two bricks that are out of place? And he says, yeah, I see the two bricks. But he said, I also see the 998 that are perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's an attitude. This points to an attitude of the wholeness, the buoyancy of mind, the sense of space. And we need to have this in our lives because it's difficult work to do the practice. So to appreciate the qualities in our minds and our hearts and our actions that actually are positive and not just focus on the ones that maybe uh, we might not have, might not think are perfect, okay? And even, actually, to go a little deeper with that, you can even find, I mean, even artists, like, like there's a little something off, right? And uh, that means that there's something unique. So we've all got a little unique things, right? Which we can celebrate a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> okay. So, so that's ethics. Concentration, 
which is the second piece, is the, simply the ability to calm and steady the mind, to place it on an object and stay there as long as we like. So a lot of the work we do in meditation, focusing on the breath, right, for example, is learning to do that, to calm and steady the mind. And wisdom is the ability to see into experience clearly in a way where we become unstuck. We see its nature and it creates space, a different relationship to it. Okay? So these work together. These work together in such a way that they complement each other. And uh, from the sutra, this sutra again, it is said, concentration, when imbued with ethical sensitivity, brings great profit, great fruit and profit. Wisdom, when imbued, imbued with concentration, brings great fruit and profit. The mind, imbued with wisdom, becomes completely free. So we can see the complementary nature of these. Okay, different expressions of the path. So they're useful in their relatedness, and they also can be useful, and we can and, and useful in our strategies in our life in separate elements. And I want to work with two, with the the concentration and um, wisdom aspects. We've spoken already about the ethics. So this is from later on in the sutra. And the Buddha is talking to his chief disciple, disciple Ananda, who supposedly had a perfect memory. And that's why we have these teachings, because uh, they were actually, I have no idea, how could he remember everything the Buddha said for 45 years of teaching, or however long he was with him? And then they were handed down orally for hundreds of years, and then they became written down. Okay. So he said to Ananda, you should live as islands, or as lights, and we'll explore those two things, unto yourselves, being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, taking the Dhamma, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with no other refuge. So it's pointing to this, this strength, this independence of mind, okay? This, this willingness to look into experience. And what does it mean to take the Dhammas? What are the Dhammas? And these are the things that are what we use in our meditation practice. They're basically what makes up our bodies and our minds. They're all the field of our experience, right? They're working with, with body, and that's what we, so we can calm and study the mind or see into these experiences. So working with the body, with breath. We work with reactive tendencies in the mind, we know as meditators. We work with the stuff of mind, the mind states. And we work with seeing into the nature of experience that can set us free. So these are what are called dhammas. And basically, it's the whole field of our experience. So the Buddhist teachings, it's kind of a radical subjectivity. He's saying the whole world, it's beginning, middle, and end, in terms of our, it is right here in our experience for each one of us. That's where suffering is found, and that's where freedom is found. So we use all this stuff here. We take refuge in our relationship to ourselves, into ourselves in relationship with the world. Does that make sense? Okay. So again, this attitude of, of, of willingness to learn is... Uh, actually, I'll, I'll, the last line in this whole thing is take, take the uh, Dhamma as a refuge. And those in my time or afterwards who live thus... And this is very important because the Buddha is saying, you do this while I'm alive and I'm teaching, but this is what will carry on when I'm gone. He's saying you will take the Dhamma. He says this in another part in the sutra. You take the Dhamma, ethical sensitivity, and 
practice of the Dhamma as your refuge. Right? So he's just a carrier of some, he's just got some wisdom here. It's not his. And so when I'm gone, fine, keep practicing. So in a way, he's putting his house in order before he died. <laughs> um, but he said, they, if you live, those who in my time or afterwards live thus, they will become the highest if they are desirous of learning. And again, it's this attitude of being willing to learn, right? Being willing to stretch our zone, to go out of the box, whatever, however you want to put it. So, and that's very hard to do, isn't it? I mean, it's really practical and simple. It's hard to go out of our habit patterns and to stretch. I've been, a really practical example, I've, I've learned how to type by looking at the keys. And actually, in preparation for this talk, and I'm not even, I mean, I've, I'm not even using really what I've typed. I'm just looking down every once in a while. <laughs> I wanted to learn how to uh, look, I want to learn how to touch type, right? To type with the keys and, and look up. How many people can touch type in here? Oh, my gosh, I feel, wow. How many people can't? Yes, all right. <laughs> Good, I, I don't feel so alone now. I did, I feel totally isolated. I'm like, oh, I should be able to do this. There's a very interesting thing that happened every time I tried to do it. And I, I, I keep trying, but I keep going back to my old habit patterns. <laughs> Is that when I would do it, I would get, two things would happen. One, and it was amazing, I would get really afraid. I would be like, I'd look up and I'd be, ah. Oh. And I'd look down and I'd be like, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> back and forth. But when I could stay with it a little bit longer, like I get a few words out there, then even in the fear, this little feeling of elation came in. It's like, wow, you're learning something new. <laughs> so I, I'm not recommending that everybody learn how to touch type. And I certainly can't teach you because I go back to my patterns all the time and I, I, I kind of gave up on the project. If anyone knows how to do it well, please talk to me afterwards. I, I, I want to learn how to do it. But it's, it's a metaphor for how difficult it is and how exciting it actually can be as well to, to work in our stretch zone with just simple habits. Okay? And one of these simple habits is learn how to calm and steady the mind. We seem to be so addicted to jumping around. Right? It's just a habit pattern. What happens when we do that? We get afraid sometimes, right? And we can watch a few breaths in a row. But the Buddha said, and I want to speak of um, the sense looking at this to be an island or a light unto yourself, looking at these two, two translations of the word, uh, island and light, to be, to be expressions of concentration and wisdom and how they work separately, how they can be separately, work separately and be strong in our lives and how they work together. So what is the quality of an island? It's something that is separate, right? It's, it's independent, it's set away from the waves of the ocean. So when you're on the island, you're safe. There's just a little bit of interaction on the outside. Of course, if you have a bigger island, then no tsunami is going to wipe you out. Okay? The small island? Okay. In the same way, if you have strong concentration, what it is, is it's a safe haven for the waves of the world, our emotional waves and all the things that come from outside. Okay? It's a way of finding strength, independence. So an example again from the time of the, from the Buddha, from the sutra, when he, was, when he was in extreme pain with his body, he would, the only time that he could find happiness in his body was when he, he was able to withdraw his attention from outward things and cessation of certain feelings and enter into concentration of mind. This is the only time that his body knew comfort. So he had the capacity to totally withdraw and to find comfort in that inner state right? It's like a little vacation. So, and that's, sometimes we can feel that when we're really concentrated, right? 
So what it is in terms of our life, concentration is a way to find a break, to find some strength inside and a way of actually getting away from difficult things at times, not through our normal habit patterns. So often we go when we're not feeling, when it's not, we're not comfortable, then we'll go to something outside of us, right, to get relief, something we can focus on. But oftentimes we have compulsive patterns and we can ter- have addictive patterns to many different things. It's based on outer objects. And concentration can give us sort of a healthy sense of relief inside. But it is a sense of relief. It's a separation. And a couple of uh, examples of how this can help in life, this ability to be really focused on one thing. And this is using, again, using the the tools we have right here. Um, So you can, and you can practice Using the, using the body and the mind, you can practice both concentration and insight into different aspects. So I remember once I was in, I was in Sri Lanka, okay, and I, I was studying Buddhism there, practicing. And there was this, my, I had a favorite sweet shop up in uh, Kandy in that country. And I was walking by one day, and I was, I was going to meet some, that, a monk, I think. And uh, I was determined. I, I didn't mind going in there, but this day I did not want to go in. You know, sometimes you're just like, okay, I've had enough. <laughs> and... Uh, I knew I, I didn't want to be with what was coming up, so I just said, okay, I'm going to put all my attention in my feet, and I'm going to get past here. And that's what I did. I just told it was just one step at a time. And then I was like, oh, it, was even a little, it was hard. <laughs> the temptation kept coming up, but I kept coming back to my feet. And then I passed by. So that's, a, that's an example of using concentration. Another example is, um, well, my mother actually, this is something that I can't do. I'm much too squeamish. But she goes in the dentist office, and um, she can, you know, when people get Novocaine for a filling or something, she doesn't do Novocaine. She t- at least she proudly told me, she'd done a couple of retreats at IMS, but she proudly <laughs> told me she didn't have to use Novocaine. And uh, so she, she used concentration, I think. Maybe she used wisdom, I should ask her. I, I, I assume she was watching her breath or something. <laughs> but uh, another example, in my relationship with my mother, sometimes when there's tough emotional stuff, you know, you know, you have to work through things with your parents and your, at a certain point in your life. So I went through this period some years ago. We had a lot of heart-to-heart talks. And some of them weren't too easy. She's a good mom. But, um, yeah, love her to death. But uh, some weren't too easy. And I remember at periods, I would actually just leave. I would say, Mom, I need three minutes. And I'd go leave, and I would just collect myself. I'd breathe. I'd feel my feet. I'd just do the sky, whatever. I'd get out of the situation. And I'd come back refreshed, and she'd tease me. She'd say, oh, you, Matthew went off and did his thing. But she was very appreciative, because I came back, and I, had, and I had a freshness to me. So, so these are, I wasn't looking into the situation, right? I was removing myself from it. Thich Nhat Hanh, the fam- very famous uh, Vietnamese Zen master, there's a story of, he was working with Vietnam vets, and it was, there was so much emotion and so much pain that he was feeling. He, he said... Stop, and same kind of thing. He said, stop, and he left for five minutes and did walking and breathing meditation to get his center back, to get his calm back, and then came back in. So that's skillful use. Um, and the last example is, is kind of, it's, it's island, right? It's an island, it's separate. Is island mind. How many people go on vacations? I actually went, I went to the islands this year. I haven't been since I was like six years old. And it was a vacation. I got warm, I got renewed. It's great, in the middle of the winter. Okay, so it's a literal, right? And it can be useful. It's like kids taking a little, like a timeout, right? In school, okay, timeout. Go and get separate. We come back. We come back, but we have to come back. 
There's a very famous uh, Irish poet, you, you probably know John Donne, and his uh, most famous poem begins with, No man is an island unto himself. And this points to the fact that all of our, we have to come back from the island, right? We have to come back to our lives. We have to come back to the situation with the person that's there. We have to come back to work, right? We have to come back to our bodies, to our emotions. And so we can get relief and we can get renewed and refreshed, but we need to come back. So concentration is not permanent. And this leads us to the second rendering of the sutra, and that is to be a light unto yourself. And what's the nature of light? The nature of light is that it illumines what is dark. Right? You turn off, and it's actually quite an incredible metaphor for the Buddha. You turn off the lights when you go to sleep. Right? It's in the night, you turn on the lights when you wake up. So the Buddha was defined as someone who woke up. So light means wakefulness. Okay? Dispeller of darkness. It sees into situations and loosens, when we apply it in our lives, it sees into situations and it loosens the grip of our hold, of our, our, our internal sort of cluster of things that hold on to a situation and make it difficult. We look into things and it, it, it dispels the darkness that's there. So, for example, if I was going by that sweet shop in, in uh, Sri Lanka, another strategy, if I was using wisdom, is that I would look into what was arising I would feel, what would I feel? The image or the memory, right? It's, ah, oh, it was a good sweet eye. I remember what kind of is and I know what it looks like. I'd have the craving for it. I'd, I'd have that, right? And then from that craving, I'd want to I'd go get it. I'd, I'd set the intention to go get it, and I probably would. Or if I saw with wisdom, I might be able to see each of these things arising. I might be able to see into their nature, and they wouldn't necessarily get a hold of me. So when wisdom sees into things, it actually releases their power. It's a power of seeing. Or with my mother, if I could just, if I would stay in there with her and be with the emotions, right? If I got overwhelmed, maybe I have to step back. Or maybe I could use breath in the situation, get a little space right there, or breathe with it. And so seeing into it, okay. And then I could stay with it. So, so wisdom helps us. And the thing is that wisdom is applied to how we live. So we have to apply wisdom in situations in life. We can't always pull back to see the nature of them and through seeing we get some space it unpacks the content of our often sticky and reactive minds so how do these two work together obviously that that they they work together in the same way that um that a battery and a flashlight work together. What concentration does is it draws all the energies together. So it takes all the energies that are disparate, right? All our energies going in a lot of directions and it brings them into one point. And in that point, there's in that when it, the more energy we bring together, or our life energies, the more power there is in that. It's stored energy, okay? So when we use that energy, when we apply that to look at something, then there's more power in the seeing. So if you're in a, let's say you're in a, 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 a little a, a room and you put on a little tiny flashlight, there'll be light, but it'll only shine so far. But if you have a really big flashlight, it'll go much deeper in space and it'll reveal the nature of objects much more clearly and they're further away. 
Okay. So when these two come together, and actually uh, one of the traditions in Thailand where I practiced, I was ordained there um, as a monk for about a year. They talk about samadhi and panya. That means concentration and wisdom working together. That they actually work together. And that's, we often see this in our lives too. We see the concentration coming and the wisdom and we see into things clearly. Uh, there's an ancient saying actually from the yoga tradition that, that what this, this, this combination is the ability to understand the object fully and correctly. This becomes apparent when concentration and wisdom are together. Okay? So the more light there is on a subject, another way, you, light, you, you shed light on a subject, right? It's another metaphor. The more light there is, the more you can see. So the Buddha was considered someone who was in a great illuminary. He had great awakening, right? So the power of his wisdom spread very wide and deep. And in a certain way, you can say we're still getting the benefits from that realization even today. So we see how samadhi, right? It strengthens, or concentration, how that strengthens wisdom. But in our own practice, and you may find this, uh, insight, the, the ability to look into things, actually strengthens concentration. So often, have you ever noticed when you're, if you're working with the breath and then you're drawn off to some thoughts, for example, or some mood, emotions, sounds, whatever. Sometimes if you pay attention, you give them some attention. The seeing energy goes, it touches them. And sometimes the mind will become more open and relaxed. And then the breath will be more vivid. And the concentration, the mind will settle down. So it can work this way as well, practically. Right? So that it's not just concentration that can feed insight, but insight can help with our concentration. And they go back and forth, practically. Okay. So I want to give a, uh, a this is a fun part of the talk. <laughs> I want to give a movie an analogy of, uh, of how to look at these, that how these concentration and wisdom um, work together in the different aspects. So one is, this is like concentration. And uh, it's, like, it's like wearing an armored, uh, an armored vest, okay? And the bullets of life, emotions coming from others and even inside, they can't penetrate the vest. That's if we're really concentrated. We just, we just become separate, right? We get that sense of space. And a friend of mine actually yesterday was telling me about uh, this movie called uh, Bulletproof Monk. I don't know if anyone's seen it. <laughs> So I didn't know that bullet monks had to be bulletproof, but I guess so. <laughs> so we can wear bulletproof clothes, right? That's like concentration. A second, a second thing, when, when, when there's wisdom, but it's not that strong, it means that we can see things, but we still have to do a lot of work to kind of get out of their way. And that's like, uh, anyone see The Matrix? With, with Keanu Reeves? You know, what was it, uh, Mr. Smith? Or like one of the hundreds of Mr. Smiths would, would, shoot, would shoot him with bullets. And there's this great image in the, in the movie. He's like, he's like laying back and he's, he's like this and he's, he's dodging the bullets, basically. So he has enough wisdom so he can see them coming, right? But they're still bullets. <laughs> so he has to get out of the way, all right? So that's like insight without, without much concentration. And then the last, the last image is, um, did anyone see the movie Crash? This one's a little more of a stretch, but there's a, one of the most poignant scenes in the movie for me was um, when the, there was this man who, uh, who had incredible frustration in his life, and he, uh, he decided to go, he got a gun, and he was basically a good man, and he went to, to shoot somebody who he thought was the blame, to, to blame for his woes. And uh, the, this guy was holding up a baby, like a, his daughter, in front of him, and he, 
and he shot. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. He shot a blank. But in the fa- his, he didn't know it. So actually, he, he was lucky because his, you know, he didn't have the karma. He didn't, he didn't, this incredible remorse and all that, you know, would have gone on if he did it. He didn't have to suffer that. And he actually realized in the moment, it's, it's a great scene. His face just lights up. He's so happy that he shot a blank. It's like amazing. Wow, nothing there. And he walked away. So what our practice does is it gives us the capacity, if wisdom is really strong, to see, if we can see into things really clearly, then the emotional bullets that we're receiving from the, we think we're receiving from the outside, and the ones that we throw up in our own experience, we can sometimes see them, see, actually see them as blanks. Right? And that can help us, it can be, can be a greater, it can be a great relief. It doesn't mean if this happens, it doesn't mean we become passive either. It doesn't even mean we're, you know, we don't act strongly in the world. But it means there's the emotional content, that there's, 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 there's nothing loaded there. Okay? So that's when these two are cooking together. The last thing that I want to, the last part is to relook at this quote that we started with. And it's, again, this, the, the place we started was that all conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your salvation with diligence. And so we have to, let's relook at this, this impermanence. And we tend to have a, a love-hate relationship with impermanence, right? So we love it when it's, we love it when it's uh, in poetry. And a friend of mine who's been going through a, a hard, a, a long breakup and towards the end of it says, thank God for impermanence. <laughs> if we're in New England and we, the weather, we have a, then we, it's, we love it and we hate it, right? <laughs> so we loved it a few days ago. <laughs> now? Okay, maybe some of you are just love the winter and don't want it to end. All right. Um, a friend of mine, actually, well, not a friend, but someone I met in a yoga center a few days ago, this woman, a very up, very upright and uh, sort of a stylish woman. She's, we're talking, she's very formal in a certain way. And then at a certain point, she pulls up her sleeve and she's got a tattoo that says, this too shall pass. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that's the positive side, the humorous side. <laughs> the difficult side is that when we lose things we love, right? Obviously, then we suffer a lot because they're impermanent. Separation is a fact. There's a story from the Buddha's time of, of a woman who came to him with a, a child who was dead and said, please, bring my child back to life. And he said, okay, I will. I don't know if he could, but he said, okay, I will. If you can bring me a mustard seed from any house in this community where no one has died. And she couldn't. She went everywhere and she couldn't. And she came back and she got some wisdom and she got some peace. Because she was willing to really look into impermanence. So Ajahn Chah, who's a, who's a wonderful Thai teacher, who's influenced myself and Larry and Michael and Ryan quite a bit, very earthy teacher, said that impermanence is the emperor of the universe. And whether we think it's a benevolent ruler or a cruel one, 
We have to learn to deal with impermanence or we can't be free. And that's what the Buddha is saying. Impermanence. Because things are impermanent, that's why we need to work out our salvation with diligence. If they weren't impermanent, we wouldn't have to do this work. So after the Buddha died, there were monks and lay people and nuns who were, and this is a description from the uh, sutra, wailing and pulling their hair. I guess the hair would apply to the lay people. <laughs> and one of the very advanced uh, monks, students of the, of the Buddha, supposedly he was free, uh, said, what else is there to expect? It is impossible that anyone could forbid, forbid anything born, existing, fabricated, and subject to disintegrating from disintegrating. It sounds pretty wordy. But basically what it's saying is that it's natural. Impermanence, death, transition is natural. It's a natural fact of life. As so we come to see that, it's very powerful. Another way, but does this mean if you can actually see that? You know, what else is there to expect? That you would become, become some equanimous sort of robotic human being. And that's sort of a, a rap that, we, that many Buddhist people get, right? When you, when you have a superficial understanding of the teachings, often you think, oh, you're just going to be equanimous and you know, non-attached. And there's going to be no life there, no feelings, right? So I have no idea what happens at higher states of, of meditation. I don't know what the mind becomes like. You know, they say you can only judge someone who's, who's below you in practice. So I, gotta, I, I can't look too far. <laughs> and especially not to people like this. <laughs> but, but this simple sense of letting go, of having the ability to deal with impermanence, is it doesn't necessarily take away how, it doesn't take away the feeling tone in life necessarily. It doesn't take away a fullness. There's a beautiful expression of this, at least in, in my limited experience of working with it and reflecting on it and letting it touch me. Um, and this is this was the, there was a study done actually with with a uh, it was a, comparing a Zen monk and normal people, or untrained minds. Let's put it that way. <laughs> in how they responded to a difficult like a, a difficult stimulus. Okay, something that would be very hard in the body and everyone, everyone would, really wouldn't like it, or say a really strong emotional response. And so what they did is they tracked brain waves, right, which was reactive responses in the mind over time. So the stimulus was given. And then for a normal person, okay, there'd be a huge jump. So there'd be a big reactive tendency in the mind. And then it would come down, and then it would go up again and come down and go up and down and up and down. And eventually, after a long time, it might settle. And this up and down... Okay, so the, the Zen monk is this. It went up, still felt it, but then it came right down and was steady again. So what's the difference? The difference is not that there was a feeling, that there was a response. The difference was the Zen monk's mind, he went, it went back to a state of naturalness, a state of ease. And what happens often when we have a stimulation, and we know this from our experience, we get hurt, and then we keep rerunning the loops, right? Our memories come in. And they're stimulated by something in the present and we get, we get hurt again and again and again. And we set up patterns of fearful response and dysfunctionality often in our lives because we don't, the mind doesn't come right back. Okay? So what these trainings are saying is that we have this capacity. 
So work out your salvation, okay, with diligence was the next part of it. So what is this sense of salvation? Let's say, well, let's, let's say what is non-salvation. The Buddha, when he was awake, was considered, the way that he was considered salvation was, was no more becoming. And you can take that in a literal way. If you choose to look at the teachings as between lives and all that kind of stuff, you can say, okay, he was actually not reborn. For myself, I can't prove or disprove that, so I'm not going to try. What the Zen monk showed, that's a sense of not becoming in the face of experience. You have an experience, the mind stimulates it, and then it settles down again. So it's not adding anything extra. Okay? So the sense of becoming, what happens in becoming is that we, we have experience inside ourselves from memories, and then we take that and we create images in the future, right? And then we respond to those images, those goals, whatever they are, and we move with those. We become. And becoming has, becoming has uh, you know, it, it, we create momentum. We create momentum in our minds. We create momentum in our speech. And we create momentum in our actions. Body, speech, and mind is how we act. Okay? So non-becoming means that the Buddha's mind somehow had, had uncovered a capacity to simply be present. To simply be with experience without adding anything onto it. Right? It seems like oftentimes in our lives, it feels like there's so many little selves inside of us. The sense of becoming. It's like we have all these little competing voices in our heads for our, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. Right? Little personalities in there. And it's like they're all competing for airtime. Right? <laughs> And somehow, we, we make sense of them. Some part of us makes sense of them, and we, we create this I. This is who I am, this cluster. And the I responds to things. It keeps making things out of things. It's always trying to make itself happy. It's trying to get something it can hold on to, push away things it doesn't like. So that's what the becoming process is. And the, when you see into experience really clearly, see into the impermanence, you start to see into these states, and it unlocks them. It lets them go. And so what happens is that more space starts to, there's energy within experience, within these little voices. We give them some attention. Have you ever noticed when you pay attention to something, it tends to, it tends to alter it? This is even done in a microscope. They found this with science. If you look at something, it actually changes the object somewhat. So they have to factor this into their equations. <laughs> Seeing energy alters what it looks at. Right? It's, a, it's a, a scientific fact as well as a fact that the Buddha, it's, it's well as a fact in our practice. And the greater that capacity to see, the greater the transformation, the, greater, the more energy behind it. So this process of not becoming is seeing into things as they are, and they reveal their nature. They reveal impermanence, and that's why impermanence is always a study. Because does any voice in our head stay solid? Does something else come in its place? Does any experience stay? No. We start to see, the, we start to see into that. And when we do that, we let go. What happens is that there's a gap between what is, right, and what we think should be, an image we have. And there's, that's where becoming is. There's, and what, what we start to do is we start to see into that gap. Okay? And when we see into that gap, guess what? The sense of separation fades. Another translation of salvation is completeness. It means, completeness means that every moment is complete. There's a famous Zen teacher, Dogen, who said, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self 
is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And what that means is there's such direct intimacy that we see into the nature of things very clearly. There's no separation. We see into that gap, and the gap is gone. We get intuitions of this in nature, don't we? Right? You see a beautiful sunset. Sometimes, ah, oh, we feel like we get out of our way. It's like all these competing voices aren't there. We're not worrying. We're not creating. It's just, you know, it's a certain level of seeing. So, enlightened by all things, that intense intimacy opens up. And then we're fully, fully present. And that's a sense of completion, isn't it? That it's also spoke, spoken of as a sense of actualization. It means you're being with life exactly as it is. It's, you're being with things exactly as they are. There's completion in that. And completion makes us happy, doesn't it? When the mind is complete, when it's not separate, it, there's a sense of wholeness. Even, and it's, it becomes very, actually very practical in terms of the tasks in our lives. When we complete a task, do we feel good? We see something through to the end. We have full attention, right? Full connection with something. There was a study that was done um, recently of uh, business life in America and the completion job on rate on, on, uh, in businesses for tasks during the day for people, for employees. And they've shown in the last decade or so, I don't know how long the study was, that it's decreased tremendously because there's, there's so many new inputs coming in with email and cell phones and I don't know, this and that, right? So there's, people have to deal with more things and, than they had to before. And so they didn't, the study wasn't about productivity. It wasn't saying whether these were more or less productive, right? Because you chip away at a lot of things and you'll eventually get them done. So it's not about that. But the study was about job satisfaction. And job satisfaction had gone down tremendously. So the less tasks that we were able to complete, the less we were able to be with something fully all the way through, then the more incompleteness there was. In, 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 there's less satisfaction. That's an expression of concentration of staying with something, right? And then seeing, you know, it's very practical. So that's why in Zen they have like this chop, you know, uh, chop wood, carry water thing. It means, it means there's satisfaction in just fully doing what you're doing. And that includes this, this sense of seeing. So that's a sense of completeness, right? But what about seeing into incompleteness? Can we get, can we get a sense of completeness by seeing into incompleteness? What do you think? We can, but only if the mind is strong enough, only if the mind is focused enough. If we, often our lives are very fractured, all these mind states, all these different competing things, right? We feel totally incomplete. We don't feel one with what we're doing. <laughs> if we can see into that, what we're doing is we're seeing into the difference between what it is and what it should be. If we can do that, then it becomes a wake-up call. All those fractured part of ourselves, right? All of those impermanent things, they all can be seen into. But we try to do that normally, and what happens? We sit down and we try to practice insight, what happens? We try to show up in a relationship and our mind's all over the place, and we get stung, and what happens? We get pinball mind, right? <laughs> it goes bouncing all over the place. Because we don't have the depth. We, don't, we can't see clearly enough into it so that as nature reveals itself, and the trapped energy gets revealed. And so that's why when we look at this whole package, that's why it's presented as teachings where we need to, to sort of to work both with concentration and with seeing, being with things. So the Buddhist schema was kind of, it was whole in that sense.
And so when we see into the when we see into incompleteness, it helps us to get a sense of completeness, but completeness in the mind. Right? You see into something, it releases the energy, and then the mind expands. Have you noticed in practice how it's helpful is that it creates space? When you see into difficult situations, it creates a little more space in the mind. And that continues to grow. In one way, I, I spoke with Joseph Goldstein about this. In one way, the mind's the practice, as practice unfolds, it's just an ever-increasing sense of the mind's capacity to hold experience. But it's fascinating because we see into the incompleteness, and then that slowly opens into the wholeness, the completeness. And that's what the Buddha was pointing to. That's why he said, take a refuge, be a refuge, be an island, be a light unto yourself. Right? I have these uh, vitamins I take sometimes called complete nutritional systems. And it's saying everything you need is in there. I don't think so. I still get colds and I still get aches and pains and everything else. But in a, in a sense, that's what, that's what the teachings are saying. Everything is in here. It's just our relationship to it that we have to work on. And then it can bring us into this wholeness of mind, this fullness. And that gave the, that gave the capacity for the Buddha to, to, be with this, to be with pain in a different way in his life. Right? So, so through ethical training, through sensitivity, just seeing how we're using the energies in our life, how we're and learning, just really being willing to learn to work with them. What are they conducive? What are we? Are we waking up here? Are we going to sleep? What's happening? That and then working with learning to calm and still the mind and learning to see into experience. Right? Look, learning to learn from impermanence, just learning from the facts of life. That this helps us to open out, helps the mind to have this sense of wholeness completeness and it's clear and that's what i love about this sutta it's so clear that that the buddha that it helped the buddha i gave a couple of examples of how it helped this human being that was alive 2600 years ago it helped him to die and the question for us is which we have to find out for ourselves is can it help us to live okay let's sit for a couple minutes Please. Okay. That's an interesting image. Yeah, no, I mean, you're speaking to the power of, of the practice, basically. You know, and what I did tonight is I laid out some of the classical frameworks around the exact process that you're talking about. So, good. Thank you. Please. 
can you maybe you can help me? Um, well, I, I can talk in general, but yeah, do, do you have I'm anything? Just thinking about work and all the bazillion projects, and you know, when you're working on one, if you've got 15 others going on, and mm -hmm. you know, so I wondered if you could think of anything. Well, how do you deal with it? How do you? I mean, I do you apply? Do you try to apply uh, mindfulness in your in your life in your well, work life? Good. Keep that in mind. <laughs> so, so far, I, I haven't been very effective in any kind of, um, you know, help, help with, with that situation at work. I don't know. So it's just work, but does it help you at all? I mean, what do you, are you, are you paying attention? Are you trying to pay attention to each situation as it comes up? I mean, there's one really simple way, there's, there's a really simple way to apply, say, this practice. And one thing is just to do what you're doing mm -hmm. as fully as you can. Just give it your full care and attention. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really simple. And as a matter of fact, if you noticed, even in the talk, it got simpler at the end, mm -hmm. right? You can talk about no separation or this or that. But the fact is, is that all these training, these are all like uh, training wheels for the capacity to meet our life fully. And so we start from trying to meet it. And then when we don't meet it, then we try, then we try to cultivate skills to help us to meet it. But, so a, but a simple thing is just try to meet each situation exactly with what it presents itself. And see, the wisdom arises. The wisdom, if, if there is a sense of connection and also a sense of space in the connection, then wisdom tends to arise in that situation that will help you to make skillful decisions. So if we're... So you mean you're talking about scattered? Okay. Yeah, I guess that's the part. I mean, I, you mean you're talking about super multitasking, right? Like all no, kinds. Of... I mean, yeah, like yeah. And so I guess that's it. I, I, I can't. About the time I can focus on one, I, it's interrupted again, and there's something else, and so. Well, then it sounds like the situational intelligence that's called for here is to have a little bigger perspective. It doesn't right. So you can have you can have sometimes it means just do like if you're just washing the dishes. And you've got no attention. You don't have to put the attention anywhere else. It can be a really time to renew, right? Just you just you just wash the dishes fully. But there are other times, right, where you need the attention. If if your your attention is being drawn in a few different directions, well, let's say you have a kid and you're washing the dishes and they need your attention, right? Are you going to just ignore the kid? But you've got to wash the dishes and be with the kid. So that means that you open up your awareness to a greater. We become conscious. One way to look at the practice is, it's like. Our, our attention can either be a wide-angle lens in the camera, gets a wide view, and it sees the objects, but it's not doesn't see as clearly any one, right? Or it can be very narrow and focused. And we have to learn how to move back and forth. So if you're in a chaotic situation, if there's a lot of things pulling at you, you may, you may experiment with just trying to really just open and relax into the situation more and then be as responsive as you can within that rather than just trying to grab on and go deeply into one thing at a time because maybe it's just not appropriate in that situation. But look, multitasking is just tough, right? <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't, some people thrive on it. And maybe if anyone thrives on it and keeps mindfulness throughout it, then please, here. <laughs> I'm quite serious. <laughs> please. Just to keep going on the same thing, I've been self-employed since I was 25. I started with a small business by myself and now I have a I have an office door that 
that was open all, most of the time, all the time. And I wear a lot of hats. I mm -hmm. figure out what kind of epoxy paint to paint the machinery with, and I decide on the market. And multitasking is really the reality of the work that we do. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I wanted to do in learning how to control, one of the reactions, strong reactions I had, was that when you're multitasking and you're doing something in particular, and then suddenly you have a call, you know, that you have to take because he's been calling you and you've been calling him, that there's a kind of stress that, sorts of build, that sort of builds up. And there's a, I don't know if I want to call it an anxiety, mm -hmm. but there's a kind of a stress and there's a tension that builds up, okay? And that's what I found. Now, how I dealt with, dealt with it was I got angry and impatient. And it took me, you know, you know, it's taken me this path to find out that that is not the solution to the reality of what I do. So what are you doing? I, yeah, I do a thing like I'll get up from my desk and um, I'll do a walking meditation. I'll walk from this office to the plant. Right. I will close the door for a couple of minutes and I'll say, hold all calls. I'll close my eyes and I'll meditate. If the door is open, I'll simply become more mindful. And I sometimes just do tiny bit of meta. And I'll tell you, I have a very active business and I have a very Good. small mind to manage it all. But this tension and stress is very debilitating to the body. Right. So, so it sounds like you're doing, you, you've got island mind there, right? In a sense, in healthy island mind. You're taking yourself out of the situation, but then you know the other side of that too, right? What's the other side of that strategy? I'm not getting so happy I might want to work anymore. What? <laughs> Oh, you're going to retire. Okay. Then you just come back. You'll come here more. Okay, fine. I don't know. What about, what about sometimes? Do you ever look into that anger? Do you ever look into the frustration? Yeah, we do that. We do that. Okay. Yeah, I do that. So does that, so that's... No, 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 no. No, 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 no. So reactivity, no, no. You, you look at it. Do you... And then, okay, good. And then what happens when you do that? Do you, is there a sense of seeing in it? Is there a sense that it, does it dissipate the energy of it? And I did something else and I used the words that you used. I call them training wheels. You use those two words. Wait, wait, but answer my question, please. Well, <laughs> okay. One of the things I do to immediately become present to what's happening right. is I, as I go to the bar. Right, good. I either feel my good. feet touching the floor or the desk. All right, I look good. for where I'm feeling the emotion in my body. That's one of the things I do, and I become mindful, and I just embrace it. I don't try to, at first I try to psychoanalyze it. Good. I, I, I doing so it. you sounds like you're practicing well. So do you have a question? Do you have I think so too, because it's working for me. Good, good. You know, when the people that work with me um, are coming in now, I know you're real busy. Do you have a half a minute? You know, because they realize that I've made an attempt to really try to change things. But what good. I like about your talk, I just want to say one more thing. I think your talk is a marvelous foundation for an article that should be read for a lot of people. Because there are a lot of us who come here and listen to things. And, and it's nice to go and read them later, because I was very tired and I nodded off at points in your You mean it was a boring talk, and, you <laughs> and you're trying to apologize. Okay. <laughs> I think you should. It's, it's a great article, because you know, it really looks what, what part did you catch? <laughs> I'll tell you the part that I did catch. It's the mechanics of how to do it that I think Really great in your talk, and I bless you for coming and giving us that time, that mechanic.
mechanics of how to, like you talked about embracing it and not pushing it away, and all the little mechanical, the mechanical application of the practice. That's not often heard of. I mean, there's a lot of philosophy and sort of things that happen which are good and needed, but the practical application that you talked about was really invaluable, and it's not heard as often as it needs to by people like me. Are you, you can, you, you can, you can leave a little note in the office, please. More practical instruction. But, it, but thank you. And it sounds like in terms of your own practice, that it's working for you. And so that's, that's beautiful. Because that's, that's an example of someone who really, you know, you're dealing with a lot of things in your life. And it's helpful. So thank you for your comments. Anybody else? Please. When you talked about the Zen monk and mm-hmm. how he responded to a situation Well, well, there can be two. Okay, there can be two things. Uh, I think it's because I'm meditating. That's how I'm able to be even. But where did that, you know, anger come from? Well, it's 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 quite a mystery where things come from. And actually, I mean, the Buddha said that there's four things that'll drive you crazy. And he wasn't. I don't think he was kidding. And one of them is to try to figure out karma. And this is a really psychological culture, and we want to figure out where things are coming from. But the practice is sure that can be a great compliment. Right? It can be a very good compliment, but the practice is to have a radical commitment to showing up to things exactly as they are. So that's what's powerful about the example. And look, it's an ideal for the Zen monk. Okay, If we hold that, sure, how did it happen? I don't know. It was, it was a study that was done some years ago. I don't know what happened. If we hold that as an ideal, we can use it to inspire us. And that's why philosophy can be very important. You get these, you know, wow, this possibility. Um, but if that's what it, if it's an ideal and it gets in the way of our practice, right? How did the monk do it? And you know, we think about that, and it'll take us out of the present moment. Then, then we're going to lose something there. Then we're going to spend more. Then we're going to spend more time becoming. And so, thinking about where it comes from, I would just I would caution you in terms of one thing: if you actually if you didn't just feel that emotion, that snappy emotion, and you acted out on it, oftentimes we feel a lot better after we're angry because it's like cathartic. We get it out. Have you noticed that? <laughs> and sometimes it builds and it keeps building, and maybe that's more of your experience. But if we're, oftentimes when we, when we do it, we get it out, and we feel better for a while, but then it comes back. So that's a very different practice than if you were, getting, if you were actually getting angry and you were aware of it, and you just, it, happened, but it, ha- it happened, but you were still aware in the process, I mean really aware, in the midst of it, then that would take some of the power out of the habitual tendency to move to that place. Okay, so that's you have you have to be no. You you, you snapped and you felt great afterwards. That's one level. I didn't feel great afterwards. Okay. I, I, I didn't feel angry though. I mean, I wasn't even. Angry. Was the other person angry? Yes. Okay. Yes. See, so that you. So that's not necessarily an expression of wisdom. Was what I'm trying to say. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't to me. You know, at first sight, maybe it's a great thing, but that doesn't mean there was a lot of wisdom present through the whole process. If wisdom was kicking in, then you'd feel that energy before you actually snapped. Or you'd feel it as you were snapping, but you'd stay with it. And it might be very uncomfortable. It's much more simple. It's easier to express things a lot of times. Sometimes it's good to express them, but that's, that's different than this. this the, what the practice is asking us to do is to be aware as it's happening 
And the more our ability to stay with an experience, which is our concentration, is how deep, how deep it is, then the more it's going to take the power out of that habitual tendency. Okay? So just, so just be aware. If it comes up, just be aware. And if it goes away, fine. That's the next thing you're present with. Fine. So you're, okay, so you wonder why it was, but then there you are. You're in this equanimous state. Did you apologize to the person? Did you feel, you didn't have, did you feel like you should? Okay, well then, maybe you've got some more work to do. Okay, thank you. Please. Now, that wisdom we were talking about, would that help you to respond rather than react? What do you think? What's your, I mean, what's your own experience? What, what do you mean what I'm talking I'm about? I'm still on it. <laughs> do, do you mean what, what thing in particular? Like, I, I'm a single mom. Right. I have two kids. Okay. Right. Right. So what do you do? How do you? How do you? When you feel anger coming up? Usually, I go walk away for a few minutes. Okay. So you use that. Do you ever try to I stay and? Okay. Good. But do you ever? Do you ever stay in the situation and apply either breathing or awareness of your feet or anything? Does that help too? It's fairly new to me. Okay. So good. I'm still working on it, but yeah, I try to do, you know, some deep breathing, and I let the, my kids know what I'm doing too. So just it, yeah. So look, it's like training, this, this training, it's like a muscle. It's like, we're, it's like anything else. We're, we, we need to condition, recondition the mind mm-hmm. so that we decondition these reactive patterns, right. right? So we're actually, we're doing something, which is this commitment to come back to the present moment, to find ways of nourishing ourselves inside, to showing up for our lives more and more. That's what we're trying to do. So if you're new to it, just keep practicing and keep open to what the results of that are. Just see, it's just like, it's an ongoing experiment. Keep it in that spirit and you'll probably be in good shape. But keep practicing. Yeah. Okay, you're welcome. Please. When you're faced with, uh, you mentioned about having a talk with your mom or a Vietnamese mom talking to some pets and going away from a situation. Mm-hmm. When do you know you have to come back to it? I mean, I'm faced with that where there's a situation in my life and the, the, the way Right. But it's still there. I've got to come back to it. Right. And when do I know it's safe to come back? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's never safe to come back. <laughs> you don't know. I mean, I don't think there's any pat answers, but I mean, if you, if you want, you know, it's a large group, but if you want to be more specific, we could explore something that's happening in particular. And if, if you just want to talk generally, then um, <clears throat> once, you've, once the mind, once you've shifted your mind, and, and there's a, re, a sense of renewal. I'm not, I don't know what you're, t- if, if you're talking about five minutes or you're talking about two weeks. I don't know. That's the, the question is, is what, when do you find yourself, when's the, I don't say the safe time to come back, but how do you know you should be coming back? Well, I mean, there, there's a, you're talking about a lot of, you know, I, I'm sort of, I don't really, I don't know you and I don't know the situation that well, but in general, I mean, just certain strategies. One, have you, have you calmed down if it's an immediate thing? Have you gotten some space and some strength, Right. That's one question. Two is, is it something that's worth, is it something that you, that you want or need or, or are you know, committed to being with in your life? Like, for example, we have family members, okay? And we may have difficult relationships with our family members, but as long as we're, I mean, generally, as long as we're alive and we're staying within the accepted, somewhat accepted social matrix, which has evolved over time, then we're going to see these people again, right? <laughs> if not, Okay. <laughs> But what that means is that they're going to be in our life. 
And so we can work on ourselves and try to create, and we get triggered, right? We get triggered by situations and, and you know, there's a, a psychologist I used to study that said, it's like everyone goes off in a family system and they all get really, they get strong and independent and work on themselves and they come back for Thanksgiving and they're all like they were eight years old or 12 years old and they're all fighting and vying for, you know, the, the, the parents' attention who might not even be alive. I mean, it's incredible. So, so the patterns that we have, that we bring into situations are very strong. If, we have, if you have to show up for a situation, if it's something that you, is going to be part of your life, then it's more a sense of renewing yourself and, and, and really trying to be wise and maybe even taking the other person's shoes if it's a difficult situation, right? Trying to see things from their other point of view. You can use reflection as well as just mindfulness for yourself. If it's not, if it's a situation where you don't know if you need to, if it's a relationship that you're not sure if you should be in or not, then, but you think you should, but you're not sure and you get some space from it, then it'll, you know, that energy, you can bring it different ways. You can decide, okay, I can go back in and you can bring fresh energy in and to see what comes out of that. You may decide if you've gotten some space, not just through thinking, but you may really understand that this part of your life is not something that's, that's important, that it's, it's not a high enough priority. So you really want to work with it. So, you know, without knowing any of the specifics, you have to... Yeah. Yeah, it's just a... It's like, it's like working with strategies and it rests on... I mean, it's a situational intelligence again. And that's why it's always case by case, right? So, you know, but one strategy is, look, if you're in a situation, try to get your, you can remove yourself temporarily if you need to. Ultimately, we want to be able to show up fully and be present in the situation so that we don't need to create artificial barriers. That's, the, that's one of the greatest joys in life. When practice and life, when the practice on the cushion and the practice of life are Practice, and we can even take away the word practice. That's when this sense, all of this path is really trying to help us to uncover. It's cultivated, but it's uncover, is this capacity to fully be present with our experience. And we get hurt. When we get hurt and we get, we get withered inside, then we, then we use strategies. We need to. We can step out of a situation temporarily or permanently. And we can try to bring in, we can try to bring mindfulness into situations too when re-engaging. Okay, I'm going to try to, I'm going to, Commit to staying with my feet while I'm talking to this person. Or whenever I start to feel myself getting angry, I'm going to try to be with a breath or two. And these are just ways to help us to stay present and also to have some space. So there's a whole different, there's a whole bunch of levels to work with. But situational intelligence means that we trust the, the awareness that we cultivate in our practice to help us. See, the more, in a certain sense, when the mind gets, when we see into things and the mind gets more expansive in a certain way, there's more stillness. There's more space. And that space is what we can come back to or what we will come back to. And then we act out of that more. Do people have that experience at all? Call it the pause that refreshes. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm a little thirsty right now. Thank you. <laughs> I'll refresh with some water. That's good. <laughs> so I hope talking around the subject gives you a little bit. Anybody else? We've got time for... It's, it's 9 o'clock, so if anyone wants to leave, I'll stay for another 10 minutes or so, if you want to. Uh, I think you were first. Please. Um, oh, please, you can stop the recording, right? It's better if you, at this point, or soon, say, anybody who wants to stay, come talk to you. I see. Really? Guess what? 
I got orders from the boss.